The Crude Life with Jason Speed. I've been all over Shale Play USA from the Bakken to Kansas down to the Scoop and the Stack and the Permian. I was even in Houston, back over, up through Omaha. There was even some activity going on in Omaha. Not oil and gas related activity at the dog park because we had to stop and let old Frackleberry Hound stretch her legs as she accompanies me across Shale Play USA as we go and get some of the best interviews some of the top information that you need for your life and your community here in the crude life and shale play usa all right folks we got a fantastic program in store for you today let's take a look at what we have on tap for you we're going to start off with a little mining money here in just a moment or two this actually comes live on location down in houston texas with the ceo of swan energy brandon davis the petroleum geologist imran khan and Jeremy Pate of Swan Energy, the three of them live on location at Cowboys and Indians. What a unique restaurant in Houston, Texas, where they have Indian food, authentic grandpa and grandma's recipe, authentic Indian food, along with Texas beef, man. I'll tell you what, burgers, wings, steaks, you name it. That was a great concept. Cowboys and Indians down in Houston, Texas. So coming up in just a few more minutes, Brandon Davis, Imran Khan, Jeremy Pate, we're going to talk about taking a wild ride as far as deals go and how they ended up investing in the Permian. They didn't start out there, but because that's kind of the Mecca right now, it's kind of the Mecca, what's going on in the Shale Play USA's, the Permian Basin right now. Remember, Wyoming just had rig count zero last month. They went down to zero. North Dakota pumped in a bunch of CARES Act money to keep activity rolling in there. The DJ Basin, well, they're doing fine, except for the state government keeps putting on more regulations and regulations of counties are starting to do in the local government. So there's all kinds of things happening, but the Permian right now is where the rig counts are at. So we went down there, sat down in Houston with Brandon Davis, Imran Khan, Jeremy Pate of Swan Energy. Coming up in just a moment or two, we're gonna talk a little wildcatting, paradigm shifts in the industry as well as safety in numbers all right let's see what else we have going on today orphan wells are a big issue across the united states big issue for a lot of reasons number one they're actually a thing leaking methane leaking gas into the atmosphere unsafe there's that issue but number two is whose responsibility is it now at the end of the day in most cases it's a landowner but is that really quite fair is that really what we want to do with this process because down in Texas they're looking at 1.7 billion dollars to add on to the taxpayers. Now one could argue that it is the landowner's responsibility. They got all kinds of royalty checks etc. Of course most people go right to the operators and say well they're the ones that have the money and if you're an oil and gas company you're the big bad wolf so let's just pick on them all the time. Then of course you got those that look at the state and say you know what 
you should be looking for more than a $5,000 bond. So if a company goes bankrupt, the landowner and the state have more than $5,000 to plug an orphan well. So a lot of people are looking at the state and saying, you know what, I think you're letting the oil companies get away with a lot, turning them into the bad guy when they shouldn't be. Listen, if you're the oil company, you're taking the $5,000 bond deal. You're doing it. If you're the landowner, you don't know what's going on. You have no idea what's going on. You probably aren't getting too many attorneys taking a look at the deals. You're trusting your state government, your county, your local government to be a moderator in places like this when needed. And so it's a kerfuffle. It is a kerfuffle. And I'm not placing blame here. I'm just citing the different different opinions and the different attitudes and behaviors that are going on here. But Curtis Shuck, he's been doing the Well Done Foundation, and he's been plugging some wells up in Montana and looking at some other areas. And great interview coming up in the uh, middle part of the program. Talks about abandoned wells, orphan wells, shut-in wells, some of the controversial topics I just named in terms of liability, who actually has the liability, who's the perception of the liability, who's on the hook for the money, that type of thing. Because these are difficult conversations, but they're real and they're serious. So Curtis Shuck talking about that with the Well Done Foundation. And then to close out the program, we've got Daniel Stenberg with Watford City and the McKenzie County Job Development Authority, uh, economic development, if you will, in McKenzie County and Watford City. New restaurants opening up. Hey, look at that, huh? Got some new activity happening in Watford City. See, Watford City is right in the center. It's the hot zone of the Bakken, if you will. And they've even got a couple loan programs that they're trying to attract long-term residents. So they're looking at this still as a 30-year play. So we're going to have Daniel Stenberg on to end the program. But right now, let's get to Mining Money, the very popular segment here on The Crude Life with Brandon Davis, the CEO of Swan Energy, Imran Khan, and Jeremy Pate. This is Mining Money. Time now for Mining Money. Yeah, so we are in the process of closing a deal in Howard County in the Permian, so that will give us a presence there. Uh, we picked up a nice little acreage position with a few active wells on it. Uh, we're really excited about that because it fits fits hand in hand with some other stuff we're doing in the Palo Duro Basin. Uh, we're really looking forward to and excited about those projects and what they're going to bring to the table for Swan Energy and Oak Energy in the future. But uh, we, we have a lot of excitement centered around uh, the Howard, Howard County acquisition as well as Palo Duro Basin. Brandon, let's bring you into the conversation if you wouldn't mind a little bit. Um, the Permian, what's your thoughts on uh, getting some acquisitions in the Permian? Is that uh, where, where are we at? Uh, still scary. Is it? Is it still? It's expensive. It is. Yeah, we we're working on this the one he's speaking about, and it um, it's perfect for for us. But most of it is a little bit out of our reach. Um, it's a very the, the entry cost is not not low. Okay. It is, is it exceptionally high, and then the well cost is high. So it's uh, for us, it's, it's something we're going to tiptoe into, not necessarily dive off into right at first. Um, but I'm happy that we're able to get in, in uh, a property there with some wells on it. Can I ask why did you invest in the Permian if that is scary and you know what I mean? I well, mean, the, I, way, I, the way we got it done. 
Okay. Um, it was not a traditional transaction, and um, it, it reduced our risk significantly. So, um, not to get into the details, but that's that's how yeah. we did it um, versus uh, writing a massive uh, eight-figure check of some sort. Yeah. Did um, you set so out to get to in the Permian or? No, we just happened upon the opportunity. Okay. So um, once we evaluated it, looked at the uh, potential, and and made an offer. And it was mm-hmm. accepted. So, okay. I'm not exactly sure why they accepted our offer versus others, but um, my guess is that they believe in the upside of it more than they believe in what um, cash they could get today. What kind of play is this in terms of? Um, is it a, is a horizontal? Is it a vertical? It, it's horizontal. I mean, everything okay. in the Permian, everything everywhere, really is kind of turned into. That's what I thought. But I, I still um, see these, you know, vertical well guys that you know they're still around. So I got to ask. Well, you have to drill vertical wells to find out what's down there. And then once you know, you can go in and drill horizontals. Yeah, but um, so areas that aren't as prevalently drilled vertically, it it takes a little more, a few more vertical wells to be drilled before you can determine exactly how to drill your horizontal. I mean, that's a yeah. just just getting the data. And so, um, yeah, I, I, we still do vertical projects, so it's not out of the question. It's just they aren't very, not very often. Is is there still wildcatting? I mean, much wildcatting going on? I mean, in the Bakken, everybody knows where everything is, and they've known since, like, the 70s, and all they needed was price point to be this and price point to be this. And so it's it's very different. But I do know there is some wildcatting still going on, isn't there? We're, it depends on how you define it. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, by the, by the technical I, definition, yes. I think everybody has their own version of wildcatting these days, right? Yeah. Well, I. It's not like it's not like okay, we're just gonna get our witching sticks together and go out here and 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 find a spot and drill the hole. You know what I mean? Well, that's what I it's, mean. Uh, I think that's what the average person thinks wildcatting is. It's like, ah, oh, let's try right there. Let's see if we can get anything Jed Clampett style. Start shooting first, and we'll bring in the drills later. Yeah. No. I, I, Okay, yeah, that's, that's that's not around yeah, anymore. Jim Clamp and oil's gone. There's much more efficient <laughs> ways to do it these <laughs> well, days. It might still happen. I just don't know about it. Yeah, we're not doing it. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's not the way we wildcat. Now, we may go pick up some existing well wars and that we think have some potential in them, and we may go explore that potential through uphole recompletions or or uh, popping a zone and testing it or something like that. You know, But we're not going to go out here and, and just go, you know, Jed clamping on somebody and and just pick a spot and drill a hole. That's I heard, not. I heard they do that in Kentucky. Uh, they probably well, do. I, they used to do it in North Dakota. That's for sure. <laughs> to listen to the full length interview with Brandon Davis, Imran Khan, Jeremy Pate of Swan Energy, or other mining money segments, go to thecrudelife.com and click on the mining money tab, and we've got all the different episodes located right there. Also, we've got transcripts of the interview at thecrudelife.com. And if you have an investment question or would like more information on investing in energy development, email jason at thecrudelife.com or info at swanenergyinc.com. That's info at swanenergyinc.com. Coming up next, we're going to talk with Curtis Shuck with the Well Done Foundation. My name is Jason Spies. This is the Crude Life Week in Review.
Here we go. <clears throat> Hamburger steaks, holiday ends. That's the kind of world that I live in. Welcome back to the Crude Life Week in Review. My name is Jason Spies. Thank you, folks, for joining us. Coming up next, we talk with Curtis Shuck with the Well Done Foundation. Yes, thanks. Jason Curtis Shuck here with the Well Done Foundation. I'm the chairman of the board. Thank you very much for joining us today as we continue to follow the story known as Abandoned Wells and Orphan Wells. Curtis Shuck with Well Done, well Done Foundation has been plugging these for a little bit now, and his background goes into oil and gas as well. So uh, we thought we'd check in to see how his organization is doing. We saw there was some news out of Texas where they're looking at possibly bringing in some tax dollars to, to plug these wells. Uh, of course, North Dakota is doing uh, some shut-in wells, which are different than abandoned wells. We can get into that in just a second. But uh, how are you doing, sir? Doing great. Oh, thanks, Jason. It's always awesome chatting with you and uh, your listeners and bringing you guys up to speed on uh, what our project's up to. So let's just 101 it real quick. Elevator pitch while we go up to the fourth floor here. The difference between abandoned well, orphan well, and shut-in well. You bet. So orphan wells are pretty clear. You know, an orphan well is one that has no financial party uh, connected any longer through bankruptcy or, you know, any number of unfortunate events. The well has fallen into the hands of the regulator by default. And, uh, and then it again essentially becomes a ward of the state. Uh, an abandoned well is a little bit more oblique <laughs> in that, uh, you know, typically that's one that an operator uh, has sort of uh, disengaged with, maybe is a politically correct term for that, and, uh, and is, you know, maybe considered shut in on the state books, but, you know, shut in has a pretty limited shelf life, technically. Uh, I would tell you that a well that's been shut in for more than five years is probably an abandoned well and not so much a shut-in well. And then, you know, a shut-in well, a truly shut-in well from a responsible operator uh, is one where production has been curtailed, uh, there's control on the wellhead, and the operator continues to monitor the well uh, to make sure that it's in good standing. Is there a timeline for when it goes from shut-in to... Uh, abandon or orphan at all? <laughs> well, there's a pretty, you know, it's it, it's a good question because it's uh, it's one that gets asked a lot and, and it is one that varies literally from state to state. So there's not a, you know, there's not a universally applied standard, if you would. You know, typically it's between 12 and 24 months uh, that a well uh, you know, is able to be you know, technically shut in. Uh, operator in good standing is, you know, like I said, just curtailing production. Typically, it's due to market swings or, or perhaps some level of maintenance that needs to be taken. Um, and, and so that's again, Jason. That's typically, you know, what, what we see. I would tell you that a well ex that extends. Um, beyond the five-year period, and that's an, an important threshold that we can get into later. But beyond that five-year period, then it's pretty evident to the regulators and really to the industry that you know there's 
there's likely uh, not an economic opportunity there any longer and that something a little bit more affirmative needs to happen. And then, of course, in a, you know, a, an orphan well is kind of in a completely different sector, typically tied to bankruptcy, longer process. I, I mean, you may see the well sort of progress through those stages, right? So, you know, kind of goes shut in on the books, operators in trouble, then uh, pretty soon the operator is gone. Well, then, you know, that well progresses into that sort of abandoned period because, you know, often it takes a while for, you know, those proceedings to make their way through the legal system. Uh, and then at the end of the day, uh, again, unfortunately, the state is the one that gets left holding the bag uh, or states are the ones that get left holding the bag. And that's how we end up or have ended up with, you know, literally 3.2 plus million uh, orphan wells in the U.S. Not to not, and that doesn't even take into consideration those abandoned wells, which is another staggering number. Three point two million plus orphan wells. Yes, exactly. And those are the ones that are conservative. You know, have, yeah, yeah, who, that have been listed, and yeah. you know, obviously with the you know with the uh, market conditions such as they are today. And, uh, unfortunate uh, bankruptcies being announced, what seems like on a weekly basis right now, the potential for you know that number to go up is pretty strong. You know, typically in the in the industry, we see those uh, the uh, the orphans really being concentrated. Uh, you know, typically in sort of the stripper fields, if you would in. You know, those areas that are not necessarily economic to produce any longer. You know, contrast, you're typically not going to see a lot of that going on in the Bakken or in the Three Forks um, or, you know, down into West Texas and the Permian because, again, there's so much value, you know, in the basin still. But in some of these other plays that uh, are sort of at end of life, that's where it really becomes evident then. Um, and again, we're not talking big oil. We're talking mom and pop oil, folks that are out there just trying to make a living off of, you know, wells that are producing literally a couple of barrels a day. So I want to ask you a couple of questions first before we get into some of the work that you're doing uh, with regards to just the responsibility and before we got on the air, we were kind of, at least I was kind of joking that it's, it's it, trying to be non-political with a platform these <laughs> days is like next to impossible because, you know, sometimes just reporting something that's already happened, people think that that's a political statement. And you're like, no, actually, that's not the case. And so, and I, I joked that it's almost like going a year without sugar. It's like almost next to impossible. So, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to get caught up on the political part of what I'm about to enter into. But there are some responsibilities here and some real questions that are probably difficult for industry and regulators and 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 that sort of thing. Because if my understanding is correct, you know, I've been kind of tracking these orphan wells for the last four or five years, just more than probably the average person, and in most states. It is the landowner that, at the end of the day, is really on the hook for the orphan well 
And in some states, there are, in most states, there's like a deposit or some sort of money, a bond that's been put down. And I think in North Dakota, it's like five grand or 50 grand or something like that. And so that's kind of where my questions lie here as far as who's responsible for these and um, what are some of the safety precautions that were tried in the past? How's that for a question? Yeah. No, that's, that's a good one because it's the, you know, it's the, the first one that gets asked oftentimes and, and I'll uh, do my best to, to provide, you know, some answers or at least uh, some insight perhaps into that. So, so first of all, you know, uh, typically, uh, not always the case, but typically, as you're aware, that the surface rights and the mineral rights on a particular piece of property uh, don't always run together. Uh, oftentimes, they have, over the years, been bifurcated or separated. And so, you know, that sort of in, a, in and of itself helps to muddy the waters. You know, you mentioned the surface owner earlier. What I found, especially in the orphan well scenario, is that it's typically the surface owners that have sort of been left holding the bag, if you would. And I'll give that example in northern Montana, you know, where we're working right now. And, you know, the surface owners are the ones that have, you know, purchased a piece of ground you know, down the road after, you know, m- multiple transactions and, you know, they purchased the, you know, the ground, obviously understanding that, you know, there's oil and gas activity. There's a separate oil and gas lease that's out there. And, uh, you know, they're left having to sort of, uh, I call it, well, I don't call it. One of our surface owners has recently called it the Top Gun School of Farming on some of this dry land weed acreage where literally they're out dodging, you know, uh, pump jacks or wellheads, tank batteries, buildings, you know, oil field trash that have been left behind by, you know, some of the operators that maybe weren't the, uh, oh, weren't the, uh, the, the best at housekeeping. And, and so they really don't have a recourse. So what they do is they rely on the state. Now, the state over the years has charged the bond and there have been bonds that needed to be put in place, albeit, you know, you mentioned earlier that oftentimes those bonds are a far cry from what is commercially required to actually plug and abandon the well. Mr. Curtis Shuck, I'm going to ask you to hold that thought for just a moment or two. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Curtis Shuck with the Well Done Foundation. My name is Jason Spies. This is the Crude Life Week in Review. The same old guy staying drunk till I die all and jamming for all my friends. That's you, Jason. When it comes to making money, they say buy low and sell high. That's what they say. Well, right now is a great time to invest in the oil and gas industry. Almost anyone can invest in the oil and gas industry, and Swan Energy wants to help you out. Their joint venture structure is constructed to protect you during all phases of the partnership process and investment. They offer a direct participation in oil and gas projects to partner approved investors. To find out more information about how you can invest in the oil and gas industry, contact Swan Energy today. Visit their website, swanenergyinc.com. That's swanenergyinc.com. 
Today is a great day to invest in oil and gas. The Crude Life with Jason Spies. The selfish army been played And the children drink lemonade And the morning lasted all day, all day Through the open window came Like Sinatra in a younger day Pushing the town away, away. Hey, on my, 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 to the night. Hey, on my, my, hey, Life in a northern town. Welcome back to the Crude Life Week in Review. My name is Jason Spies. Thank you, folks, for joining us. Coming up next, we continue the conversation with Curtis Shuck with the Well Done Foundation. The good news is, Jason, is that the regulatory bodies uh, across the individual states have certainly have stepped up their games. Um, you know, and it's I look at it in terms of sort of looking back through the history is you know this journey of you know process improvement, if you would, and you know you look at folks and and you know oil and gas operators from the turn of the century or you know mid-century. And you know, some of their operating practices uh, are ones that would absolutely, you know, flip us on our ear today just because there's no way that, you know, you could get away with it. But back then, based on the best available science and based on industry practice, that was acceptable. I think it's sort of the same thing for the regulators that. You know, there's been a lot of pressure put on the regulatory bodies through the industry, which you know is very strong in its influence. Uh, but now, what we've found is that you know the regulatory bodies are certainly way more proactive um, in making sure that bonds are in place, that operators are in good standing, and that they're really, you know, sort of doing the you know, doing the job that they've been you know tasked to do. So uh, that's that's the challenge. And then, of course, you know, we've got industry in place and industry is, you know, is always certainly looking at, you know, maintaining that balance between operational cost and regulatory compliance and, you know, doing the certainly doing the best job that they can, given, you know, the available science, if you would, at the time. And so, uh, you know, where that does is it sort of can lead to this area of conflict, um, almost a three-way area of conflict between the oil and gas operator, the regulatory body, and the landowner. So what we do in a scenario like this, to your point exactly, is that, you know, we, first of all, the Well Done Foundation has a what we call our triple bottom line in order for a project to work for us it's got to sort of hit on all three of those points and you know the triple bottom line includes uh, industry it includes um, the community and it includes the environment and you know we've got to strike that balance you know we're absolutely working with you know industry representatives and both sort of at a at a high level and, and those folks on the ground, you know, we've got to work with the community, which includes the surface owners um, and, you know, the, the, the folks in, you know, political office as well as the regulatory bodies. And so, 
Um, you know, that's absolutely key. And then we've got to do what's right, you know, by the environment too. And so oftentimes where I kind of find myself is, is trying to maintain the high road. And that high road for us at the Well Done Foundation is about uh, taking action and, uh, and making it better than the way that we found it versus throwing rocks at the guys that got us there. Because we found that that hasn't been very productive in the past. Obviously, it's not working, hasn't worked up to now. So I think we need to employ a different, uh, a different business model, which is exactly what we're doing. Um, and, and that is to really, you know, again, take that high road, let's stay focused on, you know, be a solutions based organization and, uh, and take action. Are you guys nonprofit for profit, uh, super PAC? How, how are you guys, um, um, getting checks written out to you these days? Yeah. So we're not for profit. We're a, we're a nonprofit 501c3. We, you know, we actually made that transit transition just recently a hundred percent it you know when we first started in the business we had the entity well done montana and we're focused on trying to strike that balance and it, it's really become clear jason that in order for us to stay on mission and stay on message it's just so much easier if we're you know and and non confrontational is we just focus all of our efforts on the nonprofit entity. And so uh, I would tell you that when, once we made the decision to do that about, you know, a couple months ago, that my life has been, uh, much more, uh, you know, intently simplified just through message and through focus of our mission. And, uh, and so that's, that's the direction that we're going. And I, it just makes so much more sense. Um, again, it's, at that point, you know, it, industry doesn't view us as a competitor. The regulators are able to look at us as, as, a, as a friendly, not as a for-profit entity that they've got to think about, you know, maintaining a level playing field across all the other for-profit entities. So it's just made, again, like I said, my life much more simple. That's interesting because one of the questions I did want to ask you is that if you're getting any sort of dollars from the regulators and <laughs> or if you're expected to go through the operators. And what I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, what I mean by that is, you know, it's pretty cool that you could have an organization that says, you know what, we're just going to specialize in orphan wells and abandoned wells because there's millions, plural, millions of them out there and there's enough business to go around. And if we just stay focused on this as a private organization, we should be able to make this work. And the only realistic place that you can really get revenue from is the regulators. I mean, unless some rich landowner is going to write a check, but you know that ain't going to happen. So... Yeah. Maybe it is, but you understand my point is that it just, I, I'm not sure that that keeping the same way of always doing things is the best course of action right now because, listen, everything's on the table and everybody's got to rethink how we do things. Doesn't mean we do it, but we have to rethink how we do things. And so maybe if the same, if, if we got into this mess one way, maybe we should look at some different ways to get out of this mess. And you mentioned being a solution provider and also 
by staying focused and not get involved in, you know, the politics of things and not get involved in, you know, the, the other ancillary things that can come, that can come out of this. So, um, sorry to take over there a little bit, but I just was curious about, <laughs> well, because, you know, I was trying to figure out your marketplace and, you know, once you said nonprofit, I'm like, okay, well, that makes sense now, but uh, I wonder how the for-profit side went. So do you mind sharing that a little bit on, on why you were kind of felt the need to do the transition? Sure. You bet. Well, you know, we went down the path as any startup would, uh, initially of raising capital, uh, around our idea. And, and of course, um, you know, the, the patent answer was, you know, come talk to me once you have, uh, once you have your solution put in place, we believe Jason, that there is a market-based approach to addressing this issue on on a large scale, certainly for a number of the orphan wells or abandoned wells that will qualify for our for our program. And I'm going to talk to you about that here in just a second. But but I also wanted to to really press an important point right now. And, and that important point is that the Well Done Foundation uh, has not accepted a single dollar of public funding for the work that we're doing. And, and that's really by intent uh, because, you know, being, you know, out there in social media land and, and, you know, fielding the, you know, plethora of questions and comments that, that end up coming our way. You know, the one thing that, that I've seen a lot of is a lot of reticence around, you know, that this should fall back on the taxpayers. You know, and there, there certainly are good cases to be made that there are, you know, there are or should be dollars that have been set aside or that industry has paid into certain funds that, you know, which vary state to state and on and on and on. But, you know, through any number of, uh, of pressures, you know, elected officials have found their way to sort of repurpose those dollars in other directions. And we're not certainly here to argue that, but And that was Curtis Shuck with the Well Done Foundation. To check out the entire interview or to listen to other exclusive interviews, visit thecrudelife.com. That's thecrudelife.com. Coming up next, we're going to talk with Daniel Stenberg with McKinsey County and the Watford City Job Development Authority Economic Development. My name is Jason Spies. This is the Crude Life Week in Review. Even when the earth crumbles under my feet. Even when the ones I love turn around and crucify me, I won't ever ever let you down. I won't fall, I won't fall, I won't fall as long as you're around me. The Crude Life is sponsored in part by... When it comes to making money, they say buy low and sell high. That's what they say. Well, right now is a great time to invest in the oil and gas industry. 
Almost anyone can invest in the oil and gas industry, and Swan Energy wants to help you out. Their joint venture structure is constructed to protect you during all phases of the partnership process and investment. They offer a direct participation in oil and gas projects to partner approved investors. To find out more information about how you can invest in the oil and gas industry, contact Swan Energy today. Visit their website, swanenergyinc.com. Dot com. That's swanenergyinc.com. Today is a great day to invest in oil and gas. The Crude Life with Jason Speed. Welcome back to The Crude Life Week in Review. My name is Jason Spies. Thank you, folks, for joining us. Coming up next, we're talking with Daniel Stenberg with McKenzie County Job Development Authority and the Watford City Economic Development. Daniel Stenberg, McKenzie County Economic Development. Well, I'd like to check in with McKenzie County to find out what's going on, especially in Watford City. Watford City experienced record growth over the past decade. Now, they say, and by they, consultants and people that get hired at at different conferences, they say 3% growth for any community is a healthy, thriving community. 4%, oh my goodness, we better start getting the warning signs out. 5% ridiculous, right? Watford City, what are you guys like, 800% over 10 years? What was your your annual growth rate? Um, Well, since since kind of the last census in 2010, it's about 300% for the for the city of Watford. Yeah. Okay, and that's the, I wanted to just illustrate that point, which is you know, like I said, a normal community that gets three to five percent. Man, politicians and city leaders are giving themselves high fives, and the citizens are kind of pulling their hair out, going through the growing pains. Here, Watford City, I just saw you guys open up a second school, and I thought I got to check in what's going on in Watford City because. I would imagine there's there's some bittersweetness there where it's it's great that the school opened up, but given the current state of things, it's kind of like, okay, we need a people back now. That was kind of my first reaction. It's great news out there. Another, another is it elementary school? Was that right? Yep, yeah. We, so it's our second elementary school now for our community. Opened up just a, a couple weeks ago, and... Um, and in terms of enrollment, the enrollment is really not that much different than the, the month or the, than last year. I mean, last year, and then they haven't got the official numbers yet for this fall because they have to wait four weeks or, or something. But um, it was about 1745 on the first day of school, and they ended, or, or and last year was 1796. So we're, we're within 50, and there's a certain amount of... Um, people that have chosen to homeschool just because of COVID and everything too. So, so really, we really haven't seen much of a decrease in that student population. And um, that's, that's a good sign. My honestly, I, one of my first thought was that I wonder how many kids have never seen the school that go there. Like, cause they chose to do distance learning or homeschooling because of COVID and here's a brand new school and I'm going, Oh man. And so it's just interesting how, you know, with today's day and age, but it's good news that enrollment uh, is a, virtually what it was last year, so that's a good sign. And then, um, so that would that to me that would indicate that Watford City's economic and uh, kind of the population hasn't been really impacted by the last I don't know eight months. <laughs> Let's just call it that. You know, with between last year and COVID, because you know the landscape of oil and gas has changed pretty good. But 
you're telling me that th- these are signs that things are going okay in Watford. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely challenges that this past year has brought to the whole world, but then even more specifically, the oil communities with, with the decrease in prices that we saw earlier this year. Um, but thankfully, I mean, with this infrastructure, I mean, and we're still thankful that we have the second elementary school because the projections were showing that we're going to need a third one in about three more years. Oh, you're maybe kidding. that'll get pushed. Maybe that'll get pushed to five years, but we had 278 births in 2019 for McKenzie County, and we had maybe 200 kindergartners throughout our county. And so that's still like 78 more kids that were born in 2019 than um, are in kindergarten right now. And so as those projections kind of pull out, yeah, we're, we're still going to be needing uh, the, these facilities for, for our growth. And further along with that, we also did a housing program where we're going to be getting about 100 shovel-ready lots completed within the next couple of months here. And and we, the county JDA, we subsidized the infrastructure for that. And so now we're capping the price that those lots can be sold at to help um, achieve a little bit more affordable housing opportunities and so so yeah there's a there's a lot of things going on obviously oil is 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 a big player but we've got a lot of other industries that have that we've needed to fill in all the other gaps that when you have an increase in population you have all of these other jobs that that um that are needed to get filled as well. Well, I should point out too if anybody's listening in another state like Texas or Colorado or Wyoming that Watford City, as far as like the regulators and the city officials, the public officials, a lot of the industry leaders have really been pretty confident with the viability of Watford City through ups and downs and because of the core and because of your diverse economy that you have there because of the river that goes through and a number of different things or the river that, you know, there's some water by there, I should say. So you've got some agriculture. Um, that that's that's a neat thing, you know that that you have going on there is that uh, the housing program. I was going to ask you about that. It sounds like you guys are still offering the uh, some sort of program for. Is it single family homes? Is that right? Because you're really trying to encourage people to put some roots in. Yep. Yeah. No. We're, we've actually got two different programs. The one that I mentioned was the shovel ready lot project and we got that awarded to two developers. But then we also have a second program. We, that we call the housing development subsidy, where we, um, for that's like you, what you said, single family housing, it has to be a certain um, square footage of, uh, of lot space, can't be more than an acre, um, has to be two car garage, has to be three bedroom, um, high quality building. To listen to the full length interview with Daniel Stenberg or to check out other exclusive interviews, visit thecrudelife.com. That's thecrudelife.com. That's going to do it this week for the Food Life Week in Review. I'd like to thank you folks for tuning in and joining us. And I'd like to thank Daniel Stenberg with the McKenzie County Economic Development and Job Authority, as well as Brandon Davis, Imran Khan, Jeremy Pate of Swan Energy for our weekly Mining Money segment. And, of course, Curtis Shuck with the Well Done Foundation. Thank you very much for joining us. We also have other interviews available at thecrudelife.com if you'd like to check it out. All kinds of events happening, nonprofits being impacted by the Oil and Gas Associations and other 
excellent interviews happening right now at thecrudelife.com. That's going to do it this week, folks. I'll be back next week at this time on this radio station. If you have any questions about the program, guest ideas, or topic ideas, email jason at thecrudelife.com, jason at thecrudelife.com. And we'd also like to invite you to reach out to your local radio station. There are a wealth of information and knowledge during the COVID crisis, the corona season, if you will. They can assist you in so many different ways with public information. Your local radio station is generally your leader in the community knowledge. That's one of the reasons why we partner with local radio stations, because they have a pulse on what is going on in every cafe, in every five-and-dime store. They even know what the word five-and-dime store means. Uh, On my podcast, ain't anybody knowing what five-and-dime means. So reach out and say hello to your local radio station. They can assist you in many ways that you don't even know how. So that's going to do it, folks. We'll be back next week at this time on this radio station. From the staff here at the Crude Life Week in Review, my name is Jason Spies asking you to remember, energy is more than an industry. It's a way of life. Crude Life is sponsored in part by... When it comes to making money, they say buy low and sell high. That's what they say. Well, right now is a great time to invest in the oil and gas industry. Almost anyone can invest in the oil and gas industry, and Swan Energy wants to help you out. Their joint venture structure is constructed to protect you during all phases of the partnership process and investment. They offer a direct participation in oil and gas projects to partner approved investors. To find out more information about how you can invest in the oil and gas industry, contact Swan Energy today. Visit their website, swanenergyinc.com. That's swanenergyinc.com. Today is a great day to invest in oil and gas.